On the last night of his life, Jesus, because he was God in the flesh, he knew that the very next day he was going to be nailed to a cross. We might understand that that was on his mind. And he was agonizing about that quite a bit. It may surprise you to know, though, that the cross actually wasn't the biggest thing on his mind. You know what the biggest thing was that was on Jesus' mind? It was us. And we know this because of a lengthy prayer that's recorded in the book of John chapter 17. And as Jesus faced the cross, you know what he prayed about? He prayed that we, his people, would get along. He prayed that we, his church, would learn to live in unity. And as Jesus was preparing to leave, he wanted that for us because he knows that there is a richness in unity that that is so much better than division and discord. And he wanted us to be unified also for the world because our unity can be a testimony to the world that faith in Jesus enables broken human beings to conquer human divisiveness. Through Jesus, all kinds of people can, in fact, be united. And what Jesus wants is for his people in every generation to trust him enough so we will lay other differences aside and experience life together based on faith in him and then build our life together around unity and the bond of peace. Now fast forward from the last night of Jesus' life to the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians. Paul was one of God's hand-picked messengers, and he understands that unity in the church, unity among God's people, isn't optional, it's essential. And he knows that because he is a Jew who's been commissioned by God to bring the message of Jesus to Gentiles who are very different from Jews ethnically, culturally, and in so many other ways. Paul understands deeply how important it is for believers who come from very different lifestyles and perspectives to not let those differences divide us. Because God wants his church to be unified. And that's what Paul's going to address here in Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to explain that unity, unity in the faith, is a key goal for life together in the church. And that's because of who the church is and what the church is. And, and the word church gets used in so many different ways that can confuse us. We talk about the church as a building. We get up on Sunday morning and we go to church. We go to the building to go attend a service. But biblically, that's not the church. Biblically, the church is the community of people who are committed to following Jesus. The church is us. And therefore, God doesn't want us to approach church like consumers or spectators. He wants us to become actively involved in his family. 
And as we become actively involved, as we spend more time with each other and get to know each other, guess what? There's opportunities for friction to emerge. Because that's what happens in human relationships. And so the church always faces a challenge. How do we live together in loving, peaceful unity? And in just a minute, Paul is going to explain how we can do that. Before we dive in, though, I want to give us a framework for understanding this passage. Paul is going to paint a picture of what a unified church looks like. He's going to describe some of the ways in which a church takes steps toward unity. And when we hear what Paul has to say, we can react in a couple of different ways. We might read what Paul says and then think, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, oh boy, we're really falling short. We're messing up. Or we might think, you know, we're doing pretty well. And we can learn from Paul and strive to do better. And I think it's really important for us to understand that our church falls into that second category. Because there's a core of unity here at TCC that is absolutely wonderful. And we are doing well. Yet because we're not perfect, that means there's room for improvement. And so as we work our way through this passage, if we see areas where we're falling short, let's not react to this as a chastisement, but as an inspiration. An inspiration for us as a church to keep growing in the unity of the faith. And guess what? The more we experience the unity for which Jesus prayed, oh, the richer our life together will be. So to help the richness of unity become a reality for the church of Jesus Christ, Paul is going to explain here in Ephesians 4 three distinct ways that we all can promote and maintain unity. And here's the first thing. Unity in the church is expressed through our character. Through our character. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul uses that phrase, by the way, to refer to himself because he's under house arrest for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and he sees that as part of God's plan. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We can summarize that phrase with a good old-fashioned word, forbearance. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul begins by talking about calling which is a rather interesting word in the church because of the way we use it. For example, when someone decides to go into the ministry, we often describe that as being called by God. 
When a church hires a new minister, we, we might say, oh, we've just called a new pastor. Paul's not using that word in that way. Because he's writing here to the whole church. And he's saying that every Christian has a calling. And I want you to let that thought seep into your mind and your heart and your soul. You, you are called by God. And what is that call? Well, one part of it, as Paul explains here, is to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. No, no Christian is exempt from that call. Because God asks each of us to help promote unity in His church. And yet Christians sometimes miss the mark and we fall short of our calling and often it's because we confuse unity with conformity. And those are two very different things. Here's an example of conformity in a church. I know of a congregation that has very strict dress codes for Sunday worship. Women and girls must wear dresses. No skirts, no pants. Their shoes must be dark colored. And by the way, the women in that church are not allowed to cut their hair short and their hair always must cover their ears. They're not allowed to wear any jewelry of any sort, except that married women can wear their wedding rings. Men and boys must wear dark suits with long sleeve white shirts, dark ties, and black shoes. Men and boys in that church always must have their hair cut short, and it never can cover their ears. They would have kicked me out when I was in high school. Married men can wear their wedding rings, and all men can wear a wristwatch if they want to, but no other jewelry is allowed. Why does a church do that? Well, because we find comfort in conformity. For those people, it's very comforting that everybody looks alike. But the problem is, it's just outward. It's just a way to show, oh, I belong to this group. I fit in because I look like everybody else. But the unity of appearance, the conformity of appearance, excuse me, is not the unity of faith in Jesus. Now, now as I was sharing that example, we might be tempted to scoff or maybe poke fun at Christians like that or even criticize them, but I think we need to be cautious because it's a very human tendency to lean into conformity. And we might not express it that way, but we might be tempted to express it other ways. Over the years, I've visited scores of churches throughout the U.S., and I've seen the pressure to conform crop up in all kinds of ways again and again and again. I've visited churches where you are expected to vote for one political party. And only certain kinds of political conversations are allowed in public. 
Because if someone has a different political viewpoint, that would be really uncomfortable. I visited churches where you're not welcome unless you're part of a particular ethnic group or part of a particular socioeconomic group. Because if you look different and talk different and your lifestyle's a little different, oh, it might be very uncomfortable to have you around. And it goes on and on and on. As human beings, we like conformity because it makes us so much more comfortable. And it's important to realize that we're not alone in this. We are no different than our spiritual ancestors who lived in ancient Ephesus because they faced those same human tendencies. And you may not realize it, but the church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to, in fact, like most of the churches in the first century where Paul ministered, they were a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-political stew. For example, the members of those churches were Jews who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah and formerly pagan Gentiles who'd become followers of Christ. Paul's talked a lot about that and the potential for conflict and how those people needed to develop unity that transcended their cultural backgrounds. But it goes deeper than that. There were members of these churches who were Roman citizens and proud of it, who appreciated the government of Rome. And let me tell you, there were people in those churches who hated Rome and who wanted that government overthrown. How about this? In many of these early churches, there were active duty soldiers and passionate pacifists in the same congregation. That's a lot. That is a lot, and all those kinds of differences make a church ripe for conflict. All of those differences and distinctions and preferences can make life in the church very uncomfortable at times. And because of that discomfort, people naturally would press for the comfort of conformity. And we need to realize that our human tendency is not to rise above our differences but to urge others to conform to our preferences so we can eradicate differences and make life more comfortable. The Apostle Paul understands this. And as he writes these words to the church, led by the Spirit of God, he pushes them in a different direction, not toward unity, but to, excuse me, not toward conformity, but toward unity, because he knows that conformity is shallow and petty and involved with temporal things, while unity in Christ is freeing and empowering and involved with eternal things. He knows there's incredible richness in learning to treat our preferences and our distinctives as secondary matters, not unimportant, but secondary matters, and we unite around Jesus who's above all that. And Paul wants us to know that a key way to unite around Jesus is to embrace Christ-like character. And here he specifically mentions the characteristics of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Here's how we could say that differently church, put up with each other. Be gracious 
about our differences. Don't try to impose our viewpoints and preferences on others when it comes to secondary things. And in our life together as the church of Jesus Christ, focus on what is essential. And Paul lays out the essentials in a very clear, succinct phrase in verses five and six when he says, the heartbeat of our faith is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That is just about the purest statement of essentials we find in Scripture. And every Christian can unite around those truths. We all can affirm that the church is a family of believers. We're children of God and we get to acknowledge God as our Father. And we become part of God's family through Jesus, our Lord, when we repent. And we are made new by the Holy Spirit who meets us in our baptism and begins the process of changing us from the inside out. And when these truths drive and shape our church. Not secondary matters, but these truths. Then believers of all kinds, who have all kinds of different perspectives on life, then we can worship together and fellowship together and serve alongside each other in the bond of peace. Here's the bottom line. We don't need to look like each other. We don't need to act like each other. We don't need to dress like each other. We don't need to have the same political opinions as each other. Because we do not flourish through conformity. We flourish through unity, the unity of our faith. And this unity flows out of our character and is shaped by our character and is supported and enhanced and maintained by our character as we let Jesus reshape our character. And so in light of what Paul writes here, I think this is a great checkpoint for us. When we are around other Christians who are not like us, other Christians whose perspectives are different, other Christians who don't share our personal preferences, how do we respond? Do we push for conformity or do we promote unity? And I have to tell you, I deal with this on a regular basis because one of my closest Christian friends looks at politics very differently than I do. And as I think about him and about his political opinions, which in my view are completely wrong, (laughs) I find myself in my head generating these arguments so I can convince him of the rightness of my views so he'll see politics like I do because it would be so much more comfortable if he would embrace and conform to my preferences. Yet every time that temptation arises... God leads me back here to these words from Paul in Ephesians 4, and these words drive me to my knees in prayer. And I say, Father, help me not to respond to my friend with pettiness or with divisiveness, but with Christ-like character. Help me not to be so arrogant as to think that my opinions must always be the right ones. And when we're together, help me display humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance toward my friend so that we can stay focused on our highest call, the call to be unified 
through our common faith in Jesus. Because only unity in Jesus will help our relationship to truly flourish. I pray that way because unity around conformity is temporary and not eternal. Unity in Jesus is the unity that lasts because it has eternal significance. And so I think what Paul wants us to see here is that as we allow God to shape our character, he keeps us focused on what is most important so that we can promote unity in his church. And this foundational principle of character runs through this passage. And then Paul builds on it by identifying a second pathway to unity. He wants us to know that we promote unity when we serve each other using the spiritual gifts that God gives to every one of his children. Let's continue on in verse 7. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul begins this section with a very distinct phrase, grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And when Paul uses that kind of wording, he's not talking about the grace we receive that leads to our forgiveness. He's talking about the grace that results in every believer having spiritual gifts from God. Our God graciously, lovingly, gives every one of us different kinds of gifts which we then can use to build up and strengthen the community of faith. And these gifts have been given to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they were given to us after Jesus wrapped up his earthly ministry and returned to heaven. And that's basically what Paul is saying in verses 8, 9, and 10. And he begins that section with a quote from Psalm 68 about God ascending into his sanctuary and giving gifts to people. And then to explain that quote, Paul gets a little bit convoluted in his wording. And I find that many people wind up confused about what Paul's trying to say here. What he's actually doing is just summarizing some key biblical truths. Number one, Jesus descended, meaning he came down from heaven and he came to earth to live as a man among us, as God in the flesh, to show, it was God, to show us what God was like. And then number two, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection freed us from our captivity to sin, which enables us someday to go to heaven. And then number three, Jesus ascended. He returned to heaven when his ministry on earth was finished. And for when he left us, he gave us spiritual gifts so we could carry on his ministry in his absence. And we use those spiritual gifts to serve one another. 
And Paul's whole point is that spiritual gifts are profound. Yet they're not the same thing as natural abilities because they come to us in different ways. When you and I are born, God wires into our DNA some different kinds of skills and abilities. So for example, he makes some people good at math. And he makes some people good at art. And he makes others good at computer programming. And he makes some people good at building houses. It's all kinds of skills and abilities. By the way, I'm not good at any of those things I just mentioned. <laughs> but, but we all have God-given skills and abilities. And we can use those things in the church and on behalf of the church. But they're not spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are expressly given to build up the church. Remembering the church is us, to build us up as a community of faith. And you and I serve the church best when we fill roles that align with our spiritual gifting. Now, Paul's introduced this section by talking about the gifts God gives to everyone. And in the latter part of the passage, he's going to circle back and talk about the importance of everyone using their gifts. But what he does is after introducing this topic, then he zeroes in and focuses on people who are gifted by God to serve as leaders in the church. And why would Paul specifically focus on people who are gifted to be leaders? It's because leaders set the tone for the church. And leaders need to understand that their purpose is to build and promote and maintain the unity of the faith. This unity based on our calling. This unity that becomes a reality when we do not let secondary things supersede our commitment to the overriding principle of our faith. This essential, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Leaders build unity in the church by holding fast to that truth. And then leaders empower others to help build unity by equipping everyone to find their own role of gifted service. So you see, leaders don't just talk about unity and build unity. Effective leaders in the church pass it on. So for example, my primary role in the church is to teach the scriptures. But my purpose in teaching isn't just to give everybody greater Bible knowledge. God wants me to teach his word in such a way that we all are better equipped to fulfill our calling and promote unity in the church. And that's why I don't get up here and just recite dry biblical facts. I talk about how we can live this stuff out. Because as we live it out, God reshapes our character. And the more he reshapes our character, the more likely we are to live together in unity. The same thing is true for elders who are called to shepherd the congregation. Yet God doesn't want the elders in a church simply to watch over and care for the church. God wants the elders to fulfill their role in such a way that we all are better equipped to fulfill our calling and to help promote unity in the church. Because that's always the goal. Promoting, building, maintaining the unity of our faith. And as leaders, the only way we can do that is to embrace the qualities of Christ-like character that Paul mentioned earlier in verse 2. 
if church leaders do not practice humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, then we're not going to be helpful at building up the church. If we don't embrace and reflect godly character like that, we will not be helping the church move toward living together in the bond of peace. And so, if you are a leader here at TCC, I want to encourage you and invite you to take some time to personally pray over and reflect on this. How are you doing? Ask God to search your heart and show you whether or not you're really letting him shape your character. Ask yourself this question. Are you leading in such a way that you help others in the church fulfill their calling? Are you leading in such a way that you're helping others to live together in the unity of the faith and the bond of peace? That's an awesome thing for us all in leadership to pray over and ponder on a regular basis. Now, I, I want to really highlight in this area of leadership and the importance of leadership, I want to highlight the importance of the role of our elders in this essential task of building and passing on unity. There's a whole lot of leadership that takes place out of public view, but a ministry like mine, a whole lot of it takes place in public view. I'm up here every Sunday, and you see a lot of who I am and what I do. But there's a whole lot of the ministry of the eldership that takes place out of public view. It takes place in more private settings, like in elders' meetings. And most church members never will have the opportunity to sit in an elders meeting and watch their shepherds interact with each other. But how the elders behave toward each other in those meetings as they make decisions which affect the whole church, oh, that has huge spiritual implications for us. And I've sat in on literally hundreds of elders meetings over the years in dozens of churches. And I'm sorry to say that I've seen too many elders who simply are unable or perhaps unwilling to grasp what Paul says here about the richness of unity and about the right way to pursue the unity of the church. I'm sorry to say I've seen too many elders who are petty and short-sighted. And when push comes to shove, they push for conformity rather than unity. And then it's no surprise that churches with that kind of leadership are unhealthy. And one of the things I love about our church is watching our elders work together. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are blessed to have elders who are humble and who are gentle and who are patient and who are forbearing toward one another because that's what godly leaders do and that's how godly leaders are. And above all things, our elders focus on the unity of the faith that we unite around Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What God and Father of us all. That's the anchor point for the shepherds of our church. And one of the reasons that we have a healthy church is because we have healthy elders. And I consider it an honor 
to walk with them in the ministry of this congregation. But see, here's another key piece. Our elders don't just meet and pray and act godly toward one another. As, as they're out doing their ministry, I see it reflected in their character as they interact with all of us, as they serve, as they work, as they pray over people. And what I see our elders trying to do is to follow this admonition from Paul to reproduce in the church spiritual health. To help people understand their gifting and their calling and in all that we do as a church to be focused on our unity, the unity of the faith that flows out of godly character. And I see this really vividly in what's happening within our pastoral search team. That, that team has a huge responsibility and they represent a wide diversity of our church. And every person on that search team comes in with their own particular preferences, their own particular distinctives. And I've seen so many search teams get sidetracked and wind up in conflict. Folks, it's not happening here. Because our elders are equipping to do the search team to do their ministry in a way that reflects Christ-like character, to do their work in a way that promotes healthy unity, not conformity. <laughs> unity. Which means people speak up and they express their opinions. And with gentleness and patience and forbearance, they listen to each other. And there's all this healthy give and take and then prayer saying, God, guide us in this process to lead us to the person around whom we can unite. And so just as I have the privilege of sitting in elders meetings and watching our elders strive to practice humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance, I get to sit in search team meetings and watch that group of people do the exact same thing. And I have to tell you, it is so beautiful to watch. I wish that this was common in churches, but sadly it's not. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so, so delighted to see it happening here. It is so rich when followers of Jesus are equipped to live out our calling as God asks us to do. And so much of it flows out of leaders who focus on the right goal. This goal of living with godly character so that we all can respond to our calling and embrace the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And yet even as we acknowledge that and acknowledge our wonderful leaders here in this church, we need to realize that what they do isn't always easy to do. It's easy for leaders to be drawn toward conformity. And one of the reasons leaders need to be humble is because when you're in leadership, it's very tempting to become self-absorbed and say, oh, it's all about me. And we can make ourselves the focus. But here's a key thing to understand, church. Sometimes, unfortunately, ministers aren't very humble and sometimes, unfortunately, the church is complicit in the problem. Many years ago, I attended a ministry seminar. And as part of this seminar, we were doing a case study 
of a spiritually anemic church. And the seminar leader made the following observation. It hit me so hard I wrote this down. He said, we can best understand the weakness of this particular church we're studying with an analogy. This church is weak because the pastor thinks it's his job to not only lead the orchestra, but to play all the instruments. And here's the key point. And the congregation thinks it's their job to sit in the audience, to be entertained, and to cheer him on. Ooh. That's a painfully accurate description of some churches. I've seen churches like that. And that approach never will result in a strong church. Oh, it may help some Christians to be spiritually entertained, but it will not help them spiritually flourish. And that approach is not the pathway to real and lasting unity in the faith. We never can forget that the church is not the building. The church is not the leaders. The church is us. And we all have a part to play in our life together. There's no room for the church to be a spectator sport. So Paul wants the members of the church to be engaged. And what he wants us to understand is that when we become engaged, the goal is not busyness, the goal is maturity. So as we get involved, we allow God to work in us to reshape our character so we become more spiritually mature. And as we become more mature, we discover and use the spiritual gifts that God has given to each of us. And then we all find a part to play in strengthening the church and promoting unity in God's church. We promote unity through our growing spiritual maturity. And that's how Paul wraps up this passage. Let's continue on in the back half of verse 13. Paul's talking about growing and he says, we're going to grow to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, meaning spiritual children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We don't get carried about by every wind of doctrine when we focus on the essentials. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. That keeps us centered. We don't get, get carried away by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the church, the body of Christ, the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, that's us. When each part, that's us, is working properly. When all that happens, then we make the body grow so that it, we could say, so that we build ourselves up in love. So as we step into involvement in the life of God's family, 
and we allow God to reshape our character, we increase in maturity, and we, we draw closer to God, and our faith becomes stronger. And through all of this, our relationships move to an ever deeper level. And what happens is when we're involved in using our spiritual gifts, we're not only growing up, we are growing together because we are serving each other. And as we serve, we build our church up increasingly in love. Not human love, but the Christ-like love that is a reflection of the character of God. It is Christ-like love, not my love or your love, Christ-like love that enables us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because His love will help us transcend our desire for conformity and help us to be willing to live with the discomfort of our differences. And then revel, revel in the unity that different people can have because of Jesus Christ. And yet for this to have full expression And we need to follow Paul's advice. And we need to find the part that God wants us to play, which means we all need to understand and embrace our spiritual gifts. And this leads to a natural question. Do you know what your spiritual gift is or what your spiritual gifts are? And if you don't know, I want to invite you to spend some time praying specifically about that. Say, God, show me what spiritual gifts you've given me that I can use to help build up Thurston Christian Church in love. So sometimes a way to get a handle on this is to ask the people who are closest to you and know you best and say, what do you see in me? Do you have any sense of of discernment or insight into the kind of spiritual gifts God might have given me? And as you begin that process of discovery, talk with church leaders and they can help you discover the roles that are available to play for people with the kind of gifts that God has given to you. Because we say that the word of God is true, and therefore what Paul says here is true, (laughs) which means that every single person in this room and every person watching online has a part to play. Every person in this room every person online, there's a part in this church for you to play that has been hand-picked by God for you. And Jesus has given you the spiritual gifts to fulfill that role. And it may not come to you in a blinding light. You may not go home this afternoon and pray and go, I got it! (laughs) It may be a process of discovery. And that's okay. And we can walk with you through that process. But when we each play our parts, God draws us together and we experience the richness of unity. This unity that comes from living together in the bond of peace. This richness that comes from laying aside our preferences, laying aside secondary concerns and focusing on one essential thing above all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That is our faith. And that faith is the only thing that truly will unite us. I hope we always make that 
our top priority and never let anything of secondary importance interfere with that focus. I want to wrap up with a practical example of discovering and using our spiritual gifts. A moment ago, I encourage you to pray and ask God to help you discover your gifts. And yet, as we pray, we need to do so with some humility. And that's because there are gifts that we might really like to have or might wish that we have. And yet, God says, nope, I didn't give you that one. And I saw that very clearly in the life of my friend, Jerome. More than anything, Jerome wanted to be a Bible teacher in the church. He loved the scriptures and devoted himself to study, and he wanted to be able to share God's truth with people. And as I said a moment ago, sometimes learning your spiritual gift is a matter of discovery. So we gave Jerome some chances to teach, and oh my goodness, was it painful. (laughs) He was the world's most inept communicator. (laughs) And we gave him some coaching and we tried to help him and it just wasn't going to happen. Jerome clearly had not been called by God and gifted by God to be a Bible teacher in the church. And so what did we have to do? We had to speak the truth in love. And we had to say, Brother Jerome, this is not your gift. But as we strive to help him understand the part that God wanted him to play in the church, we realized something. Even though his presentation was awful, his research was really good. He, he often had great insights into the cultural background of a Bible passage, or, or he had a really great point of application about how to use the biblical truth that, that was in the passage. He couldn't communicate it orally worth a darn, but it was there. (laughs) And you know what else was really interesting? He couldn't speak, but oh, he could write. So he said, hmm, God seems to have given Jerome an interesting set of gifts. He's not a great presenter, but he's a great student. And he can write about what he learns. Well, at the same time, we had another guy who wanted to be a teacher, a guy named Steve. And Steve was Mr. Personality, Mr. Charisma, full of passion and full of energy, and he loved to teach. But while he was interesting to listen to, people listening to him said, where is he going? (laughs) What's he trying to say? Because his lessons were horribly, horribly disorganized and not always linked to the Bible passage. It was just this shotgun of stuff. And we had to speak the truth in love to Steve. And say, Steve, there's some weaknesses here. You're a great presenter because of your passion and your energy, but you need some help. And so we prayed about this, and then God said, put them together. The two of them together will make one great teacher. (laughs) And so Jerome did the research and the prep, and Steve did the presenting. And it was really, really fascinating because they were a great team. And I share this story with you because I think their experience was a real-life example of many of the principles we've just learned from Paul. Because leaders needed to speak the truth in love so they could find their gifts and their proper place of fitting. But then for that partnership to work, both of those men needed to embrace some humility. 
because neither one was going to do it all. And as they formed their lessons each week, they had to be patient with each other and gentle with each other. They had to bear with each other in love. And Jerome had to give up his desire to be up in front. And Steve had to recognize that Jerome was better at preparation and he had to be willing to use the material that Jerome presented or they had to be prepared. You see, they had to acknowledge that God had gifted them differently. And when they accepted their individual differences and worked together in unity, the result was stronger biblical teaching, which resulted in a stronger, healthier church. And the people in the church, particularly the people in that class, were very aware of all these underlying dynamics. And so the teamwork between Jerome and Steve, oh, that was an inspiring example to the church. As the church watched each of these two men be willing to discern their role and to play their role to help the church grow up in love and in unity. A unity that flowed out of godly character. A unity that was based on their spiritual gifts a unity based on their growing maturity in the life of faith. Each of those men allowed themselves to hear the truth spoken in love from church leaders and they then each found their gifted part to play in the life of the church. And the church was stronger because of it. And so here's my question to you. What part is God calling you to play? What role has God handpicked for you to fulfill so that our church will be stronger and healthier and so that every one of us is doing our part to build Thurston Christian Church up in love, and in the unity of the faith so we always can live and serve and worship in the bond of peace. That's the goal. Let's pray. Our Father, it truly is an incredible privilege to be your children and to have the opportunity to encourage each other in the life of faith. And I pray that through this passage that we've explored this morning, that we would understand better how we can serve one another and build up our church, which is your church, to build each other up in love. And Father, I know it's easy for some to sit on the sidelines. And I pray that you would stir their hearts and show them. Show them how you've gifted them. Show them how you want to work in them and through them to enrich their lives by service and to enrich our lives by their service. And as we all serve in our area of spiritual gifting, help us never to lose sight of the goal. To grow in maturity so that we can maintain the unity of the Spirit and always live together in the bond of peace. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.